Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Well, welcome to the Sunday Lexio episode of God's Planning. Today we'll be considering the great feast of the Ascension of our Lord and praying through the readings for Mass in honor of the Feast of the Ascension. So with that, to place ourselves in the right mind to consider the, the word that the Lord has given us to reflect on this day, let us begin by praying the Collect for the Mass of the Ascension. Let us pray. Gladden us with holy joys, almighty God, and make us rejoice with devout thanksgiving for the ascension of Christ your Son is our exaltation. And where the head has gone before in glory, the body is called to follow in hope. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Our first reading comes to us from the Acts of the Apostles. Father Gregory, why don't you lead us through? In the first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus did and taught until the day he was taken up after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them by many proofs after he had suffered, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While meeting with them, he enjoined them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father about which you have heard me speak. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When they had gathered together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He answered them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has established by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him from their sight. While they were looking intently at the sky as he was going, suddenly two men dressed in white garments stood beside them. They said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking at the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will return in the same way as you have seen him going into heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we consider the account or the accounts of the ascension, um, I think immediately what comes to mind is is Christ sort of riding away in the distance on, on a cloud. And it's depicted in various ways and um, different periods of art and different types of art. And even here at the House of Studies, uh, there's uh, the Rarados behind the high altar has sort of these wood carvings of the mysteries of the rosary. So the ascension is there. And um, I think all you see because of the way it's decorated and stuff is, is just the cloud. You see the apostles in the cloud and maybe Christ's like little toes hanging over the crowd, <laughs> over the cloud. But that's all you see. You don't see Christ at all the way in which it's it's kind of set. Um, but all of this as our, as our, at least our imaginations when we're thinking about the scene, when we're kind of kind of putting ourselves there, um, the cloud ought to not represent something kind of funny, uh, you know, just like little toes hanging over. It also is not something that's just kind of like a vehicle for Christ to sort of like depart on. Um, but really is, if we think back to the Old Testament, really is, um, is supposed to turn our minds to the presence of God, that the cloud represents uh, represents the the Godhead um, being present or present amongst the the Israelites. So we can think of the cloud that led the Israelites out of Egypt, the cloud that hid hid God, 
um, that led them from from Egypt into the desert and through the through the desert and the cloud too from which God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, the prophet Daniel uh, also had a vision of the Son of Man ascending on a cloud to to the Godhead. Um, so throughout Old Testament, through the sort of historical setting, the prophetic settings, and now in the fulfillment of of time, in the fulfillment of of the sun, we have the cloud here. We have the cloud here again. Um, we could talk about the various kind of prophetic realities, the various kind of sort of revelatory qualities of the cloud and God being hidden and God being revealed. But all of this fulfilled in Christ reveals a quality or yeah, a quality, a characteristic about Christ that he, um, that he, that has been his all along, but now after the resurrection is coming to fruition and that's his trustworthiness that what Christ promises he does. He is true to his word and he's true to who he is as the son of God and, and the lamb slain for our salvation. So as, as we kind of read through the old Testament and the prophecies, and as we see that coming true, coming to be fulfilled in the person of Christ, uh, that ought to reassure us in our faith, but most especially in our hope uh, that what God has promised us from the beginning of time has come, come to take place in Christ. And now through the dispensation, through the sending of the Spirit uh, at Pentecost, which is just uh, a week's time away, um, is, is fulfilled most fully um, through, through all of these Paschal mysteries. Uh, that life of grace, that life of divine friendship is fulfilled in each of these moments, but most especially in the person of Christ. Father Gregory? So I think there are um, a, couple of, a couple of things about this passage which are remarkable, and this will be like a little bit of a potpourri. Um, I don't <laughs> know that there's one theme through which I will communicate, but just some things that are remarkable about the text, which I think merit consideration. First, uh, so this is the beginning of the book of Acts. And we often hear Acts paired with the Gospel of Luke um, because it's thought that, that Luke is the author of the book of Acts. There are four times during which he speaks in the, like a we voice, right? Uh, times where he describes his common apostolate with, uh, with St. Paul. Uh, but also uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel, or excuse me, and the book of Acts have a similar prologue. They're both addressed to Theophilus, uh, lover of God. And they both take up uh, a consideration concerning eyewitness testimony. So he's at pains uh, in the Gospel of Luke to say, like, these people saw these things or these people were communicated these things uh, immediately after they transpired. And I've gone through all the different accounts and I have done so kind of systematically or scientifically. And this is the best. This is the best testimony. And you can see that um, he's, he's about a similar work here, that uh, he's, he's kind of connecting his claims to uh, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and that he's talking about proofs. So he presented himself alive to them by many proofs after he had suffered, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Um, so this is a kind of extension of the Gospel of Luke. So the Gospel of Luke, which describes the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, culminating his passion, death, and resurrection. And this is about the kind of ongoing work um, that, that transpires in the church, which the book of Acts describes in great detail. And it's from the Lord's own words where we see the trajectory spelled out for us. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we can think about the first maybe, you know, six, seven chapters of the, gospel, of the book of Acts being dedicated to the Jerusalem ministry. And then at the persecution of St. Stephen, in which Paul himself is complicit, 
There you have the beginning of the dispersal throughout all of Judea and Samaria. And then when Paul takes upon himself to preach the gospel as uh, an apostle untimely born, then he sets about this work of going to the ends of the earth, which it seems the author has, uh, has Rome in mind, or perhaps even Spain, where Paul intended to go, the very limits of the known world at the time, uh, the Strait of Gibraltar, the Pillar of Hercules, Pillars of Hercules. And so I think here you get a sense for uh, the movement or the dynamism that's present uh, in the book of Acts. You get this sense that the spirit who hovered over the waters, the spirit who came down upon the apostles in Acts 2 uh, in, in sovereign fashion, he is, you know, about something and he animates the apostles to communicate that message. And we saw how that already, you know, last week we saw how that spills over into the uh, ordaining of deacons, into the wider Christian community uh, who are implicated in, the, you know, such that their, their whole household is baptized. We heard about Cornelius in that regard. We heard about, I think, Lydia in that regard. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this, this communicates a sense of movement that's bound up with eyewitness testimony because it's, it's an encounter, it's an event that is communicable and that draws people in its wake. Thank you, yeah. Uh, before we move on to the second reading, I would just like to uh, offer one little image. You know, that's my, that's my thing. I think it's so amazing, this line, uh, that the men of Galilee are standing there looking up. And there's so many things in our lives that cause us to look down, right? Life is wearisome and we get tired and worn and sad. Um, you might think of this great song from Les Mis where all the prisoners are singing, look down, right? I'll spare you, I won't sing. Thank Father you. Jacob Bertrand, that will come as a, a special relief to you. I know you wouldn't want me to butcher that. We were but just so many, know, it's fine. <laughs> so many, so, so, yeah, so often we, we, we just look down. It's a great temptation. We look down at our phones. We look down at our work. We look down. And um, Christ and the life of grace draws us up. Christ allows us to look up, to see the heights that we were made for, to see the fullness of life that, um, that, that he intends for us, the promise um, of life that he, that, that he, that he makes and that, that he um, offers to us. So I, I think that in and of itself is such a powerful theme for the Feast of the Ascension, looking up, looking up to Christ. Well, let's move on now to the second reading, um, which comes from the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians. Father Jacob Bertrand. Brothers and sisters, may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation resulting in knowledge of him. May the eyes of your hearts be enlightened that you may know what is the hope that belongs to his call, what are the riches of glory in his inheritance among the holy ones, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believe, in accord with the exercise of his great might, which he worked in Christ, raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every principality, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things beneath his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This line um, in, that St. Paul uses that strikes me as just being so beautiful is that St. St. Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. In Christian life, uh, we make decisions based on all kinds of things. We make decisions based on the natural law, the way that God created the world. We make decisions based on the, the saintliness, the holiness, the power of the law of the gospel. 
And it's only the eyes of the heart. It's only this kind of seeing as Christ sees. It's only this um, fullness, um, this fullness of sight that allows us to recognize things as they really are, so that we can live as we truly ought to live. Um, the eyes of our hearts being enlightened mean that there's something, there's something in us that's opened that allows us to understand and see things for what they, for what they really are. Again, I was talking about with the first reading about looking down and being weighed down. Um, that, that's the way the world that prevents us from seeing things as, as they're truly seen. But when we look up, when the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, when we're seeing as crises, we're able to understand the challenges of life for what they are. And we're able to understand further the glory of life that Jesus has for us. The best witness of the gospel is not an, an articulate explanation of it, even though Dominicans love that. But, you know, we would, we would love to teach people how to make articulate uh, depictions of the gospel. That's, in fact, the very charism of our order. But the best, the best witness to the gospel is, a, is a, a life fully lived. It's living in the glory of Christ. That's what compels people. and that, that, that That's what draws so many hearts to desire that enlightenment um, for themselves. I love the fact that a lot of the imagery taken in this particular reading is intellectual imagery. Um, so caveat, you don't have to be smart to be holy. And sometimes being smart can be a hindrance to growing in holiness because you rely overly much on your own native gifts and not sufficiently on the Lord. But sometimes I think we draw this distinction between head knowledge and heart knowledge. And we have it in our minds that it doesn't matter too terribly much what you think. All that matters is that you are sincere and genuine and that you love the Lord. Um, but I think that that's dispelled by the exhortation that St. Paul gives in this reading, because the imagery is all intellectual imagery. It's a spirit of wisdom. It's something, it's a matter of revelation. It results in knowledge of him. And when he speaks of our hearts, like you said, he speaks about the eyes of our hearts, which are associated with vision, which is intimately connected with cognition, intellectual perception. Why? So that they might be enlightened. Okay. So he leads off with a lot of very rich intellectual imagery. And this is just to kind of communicate the point that part of salvation is uh, what, what one author has described as noetic healing. Noetic, you know, we hear there uh, kind of like a, a, an echo of the word metanoia, right? So the word just means like a, a kind of mind-based healing, which is to say that it matters what you think and that by grace we are taught uh, and I guess educated in how to think aright. And one way that we experience this practically is in terms of self-deception. So you'll often hear it described in the Christian tradition that in order to know God, you need to know yourself. It's not a necessary precondition, but they often accompany each other. So like St. Catherine of Siena talks often about entering the cell of self-knowledge, because when you know yourself, then you can kind of accept yourself, which isn't to say that you make a false peace with your many sins and vices, um, but rather that you cease to strive ambitiously by your own power on your own steam in a way that's actually more so informed, I don't know, by despair than it is by genuine hope. And then once you accept yourself, you can kind of get over yourself, right? So yes, I am this, that, and the other way. I wish that I weren't, but this is the hand that I've been dealt. And my salvation is a matter of playing my hand, subject to God's grace, uh, and with a kind of patience uh, on his timing. And so, yeah, part of what it means to be converted, part of what it means to be healed and elevated by grace is to have this, um, this kind of washing of our minds and disciplining of our thinking so that we are less self-deceived. So that way when we say like, hey, Lent's rolling around and I'm gonna do these things again like I did last year, you're, you're cognizant of the fact that you failed last year. Uh, and you're cognizant of the fact that you were either overly ambitious or insufficiently so. 
or you're cognizant of the fact that you told yourself a variety of lies and made a variety of rationalizations. And if you go about it in the same way, you're destined to fail, feel terrible, uh, and not rely overly much on the help of God and instead be sent down like a kind of Pelagian death spiral. Okay, so like, it's helpful to know that. Why? Because you're going to do it differently? No, but because you can beg God that you might not do it differently in the future. Again, subject to his timing in accord with you know, his, his strange and unsearchable wisdom. So I think that at the end, it's helpful to know, it's, it's saving to know uh, that our minds need to be healed. They need to be bathed in the light of grace so that we can actually have access both to the nature of God and to ourselves so that we aren't you know, destined to commit the same self-deceived mistakes or to languish under the weight of our own you know, lies. It's providential here that I'm speaking on this reading last because Father Patrick and Father Gregory have set me up wonderfully for my like two cents here. Um, Father Patrick talked about uh, the heart of the person being, you know, the, the core of where we come to know God and how we come to know God. And Father Gregory just used the word bathed and, um, you know, that this, this knowledge is, is sort of being bathed in God's grace and, and being, transformed by God's grace. It's interesting to note that um, that that line that uh, that I almost called him St. Patrick, that Father Patrick, uh, <laughs> my bad, uh, or maybe Someday. not, I don't know, uh, God willing. Uh, the line that Father Patrick called our attention to uh, in, in the reading also uses the word enlightenment, that our heart, that our eyes heart may be enlightened. And yeah, it's interesting to note that Saint Justin Martyr, one of the one of the early followers of the Church, called or referred to baptism as the Enlightenment, as the sacrament of the Enlightenment. He called that he said that this bath is called Enlightenment, um, and not a sort of Enlightenment such that, like you know, kind of you know, centuries later, the the Enlightenment, which is you know, a movement in kind of intellectual and philosophical thought, not a sort of Enlightenment of just coming to know a bunch of information, but an Enlightenment with respect to our knowledge of God and and ourselves, that we might be bathed in the graces of baptism, transformed so that we may know God, so that one we know that we are sinners, so that we can beg for a savior, beg for the grace to be saved from the vices and the habits and whatever we may continually fall into and all of these things, but enlightened so that we may come to know God and that in knowing Christ through Christ come to know the father. Um, this enlightenment is not just something that is kind of, um, Oh, we, we sort of know something better or know something more clearly, but it's something transformative. Grace transforms us from within. It makes us, um, it heals us and, and makes us new gives us that new heart that is prophesied. Um, so this, this whole idea of the heart and the eye, the eyes heart and enlightenment, I think is really wrapped in, in, in sort of the beginning um, of, of the spiritual life for us, of our relationship with Christ in the sacrament of baptism, that then is to grow um, and to be brought to fulfillment throughout our lives and ultimately, God willing, as, as a saint with St. Patrick over there, you know, sitting on the other side of the screen. <laughs> Well, thank you for that, Father. Uh, with that, let's turn now to the gospel. Uh, the, the gospel passage we'll hear this Sunday comes from uh, the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had ordered them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but they doubted. Then Jesus approached and said to them, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. <clears throat> so, uh, on account of the fact that the, the Feast of the Ascension is celebrated throughout the you know ABC Sunday Mass reading cycle, uh, we will kind of move through the different Gospel accounts. I think it's we go through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's strange because the Ascension doesn't occur in most of the Gospels. <laughs> so often what you have recounted are events immediately preceding the Ascension. So the Gospel of Mark, you know, ends with, and they were afraid, but then you have these, like, four different endings of the Gospel of Mark, and in one of them, it says after this kind of commission, which is highly reminiscent of the Gospel of Matthew, that there is a kind of Ascension recounted. But it's only really recounted in, in straight fashion in Luke. Um, you know, we don't have anything even resembling it in the Gospel of John. So it's fascinating that, uh, that the Gospels gesture towards this thing that is part of the tradition, but they do so in kind of obscure fashion. Um, it's one of my favorite ways in which, is this, in which this is recounted is in the Gospel of John. So in John 20, uh, when the Lord appears, well, so Mary goes, she looks in the tomb, it's empty. She runs to the disciples, they come, it's empty. They see the burial clause, they believe. Then she goes back, she's weeping, she sees angels, she turns, gardener, then, you know, she, he says to her, Mary, she says, Rabuni, she recognizes that of the Lord. And then he says, you know, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. So the way it's recounted in the Gospel of John, again, is as something anticipated, but that marks the relationship uh, between the Lord and St. Mary Magdalene. And it's interesting, he says, I'm going, uh, you know, go and tell my brothers that, that I'm going to my father and your father, to my God and your God. It's interesting that in the Gospels, uh, the Lord never refers to his father as our father, except in the one instance in Matthew chapter six in you know, the Lord's prayer. Uh, but there in the gospel of John, it's just about as close as he gets to it because the whole work of the Paschal mystery is a work of um, adoption, right? So, so we who are brothers and sisters of Christ by grace are made adopted sons and daughters of God. And so co-heirs with the only begotten. And the Lord is saying there in the gospel of John, my father and your father, he's maintaining the distinction between himself, who is the natural born son of God, and us, who are adopted sons and daughters of God. Um, but that, that, that work is being accomplished, and it's being accomplished in part by the ascension. So it's fascinating here in the Gospel of Matthew, where we're, you know, we're hearing the Lord's last sermon at, right before he ascends. And what does he tell them to do? He tells them to baptize. So the work of the adoption of the sons and daughters of God has been accomplished in the Paschal Mystery, which includes his passion, death, and resurrection, and his ascension, and his reigning gloriously at the right hand of the Father by presenting our humanity in the temple of the Most High God. So therefore, it could serve for us not only as a sign, but also as a cause of our own ascension and glorification. And what are the means by which that's to be accomplished and applied? Baptism. So baptism is not just a mere washing with water, but it's a washing with water that actually accomplishes the very purpose for which the Lord Jesus has come. So it applies the merits uh, that he won for us during his earthly life, all of his deeds and sufferings are saving, uh, and it applies them throughout the course of time so that this ascension reality uh, can be continued in the life of the church and her experience, and those merits applied over the course of successive ages of Christians coming into possession of their, not birthright, but baptism right. This past, this past week leading up to the Ascension, um, 
a number, well, actually all three of us, different days, but celebrated the anniversary of our priesthood. And on, on the anniversary of my priesthood, I read, I reread the homily that was preached at my first mass. So it's the custom that we're ordained. And then the next day we celebrate our first mass as a priest, but we invite a priest who has been sort of influential in, in some way in our lives to preach that homily, to preach that year at our first mass that we celebrate as newly ordained priest. And one of the things that I've remembered, but also, you know, just reread this week was that um, this homily that was preached at my first mass, uh, the, the father preached about the, the last supper and now at the last supper before our Lord ascended, um, he put the last pieces of his church in place um, in order not to leave us orphans. He gave us the Eucharist and he gave us the priesthood. Um, and it was, I mean, it's a beautiful homily, I think, um, wasn't about me, which made it even better. It was about Jesus, you know, so that's, that's great. Um, but I was thinking about that in reading the gospel for the Ascension, that as Christ is getting ready uh, to leave, and as he's promised not to leave us orphans, how, what does he, what does he leave us? Well, he leaves us with access, direct access to him through the ministerial priesthood of the church, through the grace that's offered in the sacraments to have this direct contact, most especially in the Eucharist, that is, you know, the very body and blood of Christ, but confected at the hands of a priest to have um, access to divine life through the sacrament of baptism, which is, you know, almost always in almost every circumstance administered at, by the hands or at the hands of a priest. Um, it, we've been reading, and I know I've said on, on previous weekends that Acts of the Apostles has sort of set up for us the, the church kind of coalescing in, in kind of infant form. And here, I think, is sort of the climax. As the Lord ascends, he, he tells us again how to, how to make, as it were, how to generate um, souls for Christ through baptism. But also in the, in the bigger picture of the church and the ministerial and apostolic work of the church, through the grace of the sacraments, that we may be enlightened, that we may come to know him, that, as Father Patrick said, we may look up to heaven, and, and so that our souls and our eyes and our minds and our hearts may be turned to the glory of heaven for which we're made, rather than the things of this passing earth. And that leads very well into the, po the point that I wanted to make, which is the world's going to end, folks. We're going <laughs> to we're going to die, and this is not all that this is not all that there is. This is not all that is right until the end of the age. This age, like all all things that we see and know, um, will pass away, and these will be the former things. And that, I mean, we can't remind ourselves enough of this perspective that we need to have to live according to the, the perspective of eternity and not according to the here and now. It doesn't mean that we have to neglect um, practical and reasonable things that we should do to protect our lives, to care for our lives, to care for others, to protect others. Um, it doesn't mean we should neglect those things, but it does mean that we have to recognize um, the limits of what we can do and the superiority, the providential care, rather, of Christ governing and directing all of these things, to recognize that, that what I can do is limited because what can happen in this, in this life is limited, because it will end. Uh, it, it, is, it is limited. It will pass away. And um, at the end of the age, what will remain? Christ and everything that is dear to him. So this is the, the challenge for us to um, to always to always be attentive to this eternal perspective to make sure that we're living our lives ordered till uh, ordered to that e that eternal life ordered to um, not this age but the age to come. So uh, this isn't mass, but we have a couple of announcements. <coughs> uh, 
Father Jacob Bertrand always says to me when we when we take these things, he says, Father Patrick, are you writing these down? So I have my little notes here to make sure that we cover. <laughs> okay, don't yell to make, like that. I just make sure that we cover. sure that we cover. Professional. <laughs> are you writing this down? Well, the first thing that we wanted to share is that this will be the last episode of our Lexio Divina for this season. Um, we're going to continue to do the Sunday Lexio episodes, but um, but seasonally. We'll do, we'll do them in Advent. We'll do them in okay, can we just They're laughing hysterically second? because I changed no, this, is, this is this precisely is... why I ask Father Patrick, did you write this down? Because, folks, this is not the last episode of our Lexia Divina. Pentecost is the last episode. Unbelievable. I just have last episode. It's like, oh, this must be the last episode. <laughs> People wonder, you know, if, you, if you're watching this on YouTube or you, and you wonder why I make the faces I make, this, this is why I'm going to be saved. It's because of these moments. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so this is the second to last episode. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm like, uh, anyway, this is the second last episode, but we're going to make these at this part is true. We're going to make them seasonal. So we'll do the Sunday Lexio episodes in Advent and Lent, especially um, to, to height, to heighten to draw further uh, attention to the beauty of those liturgical seasons. Um, upcoming, once we do our final episode, which will be the Pentecost episode for the <laughs> Sunday Lexios, um, that week of Pentecost, Father Gregory, Father Jacob Burton, and myself have teamed up with the Sisters of Life to offer a digital retreat on Alatea. Um, so each night, uh, beginning on Pentecost Sunday for seven nights, uh, we'll be talking about a different gift of the Holy Spirit in those conferences, um, which will be about 20 to 30 minutes. Those conferences um, will conclude with something to lead into prayer, either meditation or litany or um, a musical reflection. And so those are going to be very beautiful conferences. Again, um, we're teaming up with the Sisters of Life and those will be on Alatea, but we'll be sharing all of that through our God's planning social media. So you'll be able to share them there. Um, that's all that I have written down. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Father Gregory or Father Jacob Urchin, do you have other announcements? Things to share? Uh, I guess at least in vocation world or vocation type world, um, Please, in your kindness, remember, if you can, to, to, to say a prayer. We, this weekend is uh, a really glorious weekend for the province of St. Joseph and the church. We had um, eight men ordained to the priesthood. Because of coronavirus, it was kind of a strange setting. So we had six men ordained here in Washington, D.C. at the House of Studies. One man ordained um, and at, at Providence College in the chapel at Providence College, and one man ordained at St. Vincent Fair Church in New York City. The two that weren't in D.C. were on apostolic year, but because of travel restrictions and that sort of thing, um, were ordained in those places, all in private masses, um, so not open to the public. Unfortunately, families weren't able to, to come. They were able to see a live stream and all that. But um, all the same, a glorious day for the church. Um, and yeah, if you would offer a prayer for their priesthood and, and for their ministry and for the province and for future vocations, um, I know they'd be grateful and, you know, as would, as would we. So thanks for that. And then to Mystic Institute things, uh, quarantine lectures, proceed apace. Uh, we've started now doing Aquinas 101 Live, which is a quarantine lecture devoted to kind of diving deeper on certain Aquinas 101 lectures. So we just had our first one this past Thursday. Um, which was how to think like St. Thomas. It's kind of an introduction to reading St. Thomas for those who are intimidated. And then we'll have our next one on Thursday with Father James Brent, uh, the logic of argument. So a kind of basic introduction to philosophy. Uh, and then we also have the, the kind of regular quarantine lectures topics uh, cropping up 
so there's mostly Tuesdays and Thursdays, but you can find um, you can find the schedule at the TI website. And of course, Aquinas 101 remains an excellent course, an excellent resource for those who are looking for uh, for good intellectual formation. Well, thank you all for joining us. Um, let's conclude with the prayer after communion for the Mass proper to the Feast of the Ascension. Let us pray. Almighty ever-living God, who allow those on earth to celebrate divine mysteries, grant we pray that Christian hope may draw us onward to where our nature is united with you. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please like and share the podcast. Um, we are always grateful for uh, directing people to our content. Please know that we're continuing to pray for you, and um, we look forward to worshiping with you um, as public masses begin to return to life of the faithful in the United States. God bless. Thanks for listening to God's Planet a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.